Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host today, and with me, as usual, is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Howdy, howdy, howdy. This is the Malthouse Games Podcast, episode number 148, which is absolutely bonkers. We are a podcast all about board games, card games, role-playing games, tabletop games, dice games, things of that sort, as well as beer most of the time. And today we have a sour ale that I got on the half-price rack of our friendly local liquor store. Yeah, you did. And it is delightful. Spoiler alert, we had a couple of these bad boys on Independence Day, enjoyed the living heck out of them, and are ready to review them on this here podcast. And up first, we have the Blueberry Sour from Anthem Brewing Co. While Delty's pouring these beers, what have we been up to the last couple of weeks, Delty Poo? The last few weeks have been relatively uneventful, I think. We got to, what have we done we haven't talked about on the show? So first of all, our bad luck for the year is done. I hope so. As of June 30th, I think the last bad luck thing that happened was Orville Peck's concert got canceled. And that is the third time that his concert that I was going to go to has been canceled. And he canceled it for mental health reasons. So as a therapist, I'm like, you go, girl. You cancel that concert. Take care of yourself. But as an Orville Peck fan who has had three concerts canceled due to COVID, I'm like, dang, that sucks. But knock on wood, throw salt over your shoulder, and cross your fingers, cross your toes, cross your eyes, and pick your nose. Our bad luck is done for the rest of the year. And so starting July 1st, we have nothing but good vibes in this year household. What do we do on June 1st, Delty? On June 1st? Yes. We went to the Spark game. July 1st. July 1st. Yeah, you're missing a whole I'm month. I'm missing a whole month. I was month. so confused. We went to an OKC Spark game. Uh, the Oklahoma City Spark is our brand new professional women's fast pitch softball team. Uh, softball is big in the state because the OU Sooners, University of Oklahoma, uh, their softball team is one of the best in the nation. We also host the College World Series here. It's we the do. softball capital of the nation as well. I did not know that. But now we have a pro team along with Texas who have the Smoke, coolest name. And then there was another one, the Vipers. Yes, the Vipers. There's a total of five professional softball teams, from what I understand, from what, I, from what my Googling ah. revealed the other day. Yep. But there's only three in our little area. And so we play the Smoke and the Vipers basically on and off every other week for three months out of the year. That's crazy. And I'm betting it expands a bit because of how popular softball has been. But it was a lot of fun. It was a good time. Uh, not big sports people here, but we know how to enjoy a live sports event. Yes, my sister was laughing because Delton and I, basically both of our heads together, we understood about 65% of the game. Otherwise, we were asking Riley questions or using context clues to figure out what was going on. I understand like 90%. Uh, I do, uh... but there, there are very few small rules that I either don't get or it's something unique to softball that I don't understand. But I understood particular strategies and things that happened. But she was laughing because I was explaining them to you. And then there's certain times that I'm like, well, shit, what is that? I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> we got it figured out. We got it figured out. We, we sports balled hard that night, my friend. We did. We, we watched a drone show. We did watch a drone show, which was actually pretty neat. Uh, we also got to see Asteroid City, the newest Wes Anderson movie. I don't think we've talked about that on here. Highly we, recommend if you like Wes Anderson. We watched that before the last podcast. Did we? Yes, we did. Never mind then. I mean, still go watch it, but there you are. But yes, we, we did that. Uh, we also, like Delt said, just really had a chill week. Uh, we had the 4th of July that occurred this week, so we just stayed home, comforted our pets, and did some jamming. We did. We jammed on our instruments. 
Uh, I have been finally for the first time, I don't know, 10 years probably, for the first time in a long time, actually started playing drums again uh, consistently and actually focusing on getting better at the drums, which is a big thing because I haven't done that in a long, long, long time. Y'all want to hear the soundtrack to my life the last two weeks since we've been home with very few plans? Y'all want to hear what it sounded like? Sure. Okay. So for you all who can't quite make out what that is, and I'll send you the clip, Delty, that is the sound of Delton playing the drums over the sound of a live wrestling match. It's me. We're watching wrestling, and I'm playing on my practice pad in the living room. Uh, my arms at that point were so exhausted from a lot of playing that day, which was Wednesday this week. I guess yesterday, technically. Uh, they were so exhausted, but I just, I'll, I will just sit and play on the pad and... Uh, I'm finally trying to actually learn double strokes. And if you know anything about double strokes, they're a pain in the ass when you first learn them. And I've never learned them. And I finally have found the appropriate technique. And I now know what it feels like. And I'm trying to practice and get stronger and strengthen that motion until I can start increasing the speed quite a bit, as well as doing my single speed, uh, single stroke training, which is exhausting proud of him he's been doing a very good job he's been extremely dedicated to his practice schedule and last night he was practicing his double stroke or whatnot and i asked him what would be worse would you rather have to do an entire minute at 180 beats per minute or would you rather or 180 beats per minute doing quarter notes or would you rather spend a whole minute doing 60 beats per minute whole notes yeah and i said because so it was 10 minutes Oh, 10 minutes. 10 minutes with quarter notes at 108, uh, 16th notes at 180, which is brutal, or uh, like five minutes. It was like 10 minutes, 60 beats per minute, whole notes. Yeah, and it, it easily I would rather kill myself doing 16ths at 180 for 10 minutes trying to. It would be a minute and I'd be dead, uh, or yeah, versus the other. No, playing super slowly is just the bane of my existence. I can't handle it. It's too much. You did it for about 30 seconds last night, and I think you lost your marbles. I think so. Just about as much as me trying to do 180 and 16th notes for 10, 30 seconds. <laughs> Too much. But anyway, so we played some music together, just goofing around and uh, doing that. And it's been fun to get back into drums and uh, try to influence Haley to start playing more on her guitar. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. And I am, I have a solid C plus and playing some Chili Peppers music, y'all. Yeah. We also played a lot of games this week. Before we get into games, let's taste this beer. I am ready. We've been talk- We've been doing our budgeting for the last like two hours, and I am ready for a beer. It's, it's, it's a special kind of budgeting. It's called theoretical budgeting. It is, in theory, if we do this with no actual plan in, in, on paper. <laughs> and no bad luck coming at us for the rest of the year. Yes, please. Uh, So this beer today is from Anthem Brewing Co. It is Blueberry Fruited Sour Ale. Uh, Anthem is out of Oklahoma City. It's a 5.3% alcohol by volume in a 12-ounce can. It says, don't touch that dial. This bright and tart fruited sour ale is sure to have you begging for more. We balance that familiar citric, citric? That's weird. Citric bite with a smooth and easy touch of blueberry to give you your new favorite sour. There you go. Are you ready, kids? Uh, I think we think we are. It's uh, 
Got an interesting, not purple color. It's kind of a orangey pinky. It looks like the inside of a blueberry. You know, whenever you cut open a blueberry, the flesh is like that. Nope. Orange. Okay. I've never cut a blueberry open. Okay, when you cut open a blueberry, you bite it in half. You know, the flesh is like this ruby orange. Are you a squirrel? <laughs> yes. You're like, oh, I want to take a nibble of this teensy blueberry. My name is Squirrely Geek. I've said it for five years on the podcast. I am yeah, a squirrel. Yeah, you are a freaking geek. <laughs> I'm going to eat half a blueberry today because I can't hold a whole blueberry at one time. I'm going to choke on it. <laughs> anyway, that's why I have extremely knowledgeable knowledge about what the inside of a blueberry looks like. But this looks like the inside of a blueberry. It's the same color. And it tastes delicious. It's nice and carbonated. It's tart without being so much that it gets your jaw, which is nice. Mm-hmm kind of a calmer tart a lot more drinkable that way yes i feel like this is like a diet warhead kind of i guess it's not as sour as a warhead but it definitely tastes like a warhead it's got a good amount of sweetness on the tongue even with the tart you can taste that it's kind of sugary and then when it hits the back of the tongue it finishes not very tart it finishes sweet more than anything but it leaves me salivating every time yeah, it does. It's a really good beer, though. It's nice and refreshing, uh, nice and tart with a good flavor. It's simple, and I, I don't know. I just really like it. I never had it before. I'm glad we picked them up. I'm about to go to the store tomorrow and see if they have more of them half-price their beers. Now let's get into the game. Oh, here's the door. It's straight ahead. It's, it's a game. Jesus Christ. The board game. It is so fun, and it ain't that lame. Except for at two. <laughs> Except for at two players. Spoiler alert. So the game for today is Jerusalem Anno Domini. Uh, we've been just calling it Jerusalem because that's what we're used to, but it, it is Jerusalem, I-E-R. I think it's supposed to be closer to the Hebrew uh, that I cannot remember after Googling it today. Anyway, this is Jerusalem Anno Domini. It's a new game. Uh, it is published by Devere Games, is how I'm going to pronounce it. I don't know. They are from Spain. Hey, that's cool. Uh, game design is Carmen G. Jimenez. Illustrations are L.A. Draws, Enrique Corominas, and David Esprit. Editing is by David Esprit. Translation is Andy Campbell. Proofreader, William Niebling. And layout is by Meeple Foundry. Uh, Jerusalem Anno Domini is a game about trying to send your followers of Jesus Christ to the Last Supper to get the best seat as close as you can get to Jesus and the apostles. I almost said disciples. Uh, To Jesus and the apostles. So right off the bat, this game sounds... uh, you, You had one of two reactions just now, as did I have one of the two reactions. You either go oh, well, that's really interesting. Or you go, oh, they're trying to proselytize me here. It's uh, it's uh, very divisive, very divisive theming. However, I am at least decently happy to say I think they've done a pretty good job of uh, presenting the game from a historical stance rather than a religious stance. Yes, there is very little, if any, actual mention of spirituality in the game. Uh, I think Delton pointed out earlier today that the depiction of Jesus does have a halo around him. However, the parables are just parables. There's no mention of him being the son of God or sitting in the heaven. There's not that spiritual connection there. It's really just presenting him as a man, as a prophet, 
with followers all around. Yes, Jesus has a halo, and the uh, the four different uh, color of apostles all have a halo. And so that's the only really religious thing, I guess, aside from the fact that your score markers are a white dove. That might be, I mean, I guess depending on your interpretation of icons. Yes, it's and symbolism there. It's Yeah, yeah, it's just how that goes. Uh, but yeah, so the game is all about that, getting seated or sending your followers to the Last Supper to try to get the best seat, which get uh, gets you the most points with the better seats, better points, and so on. The game is played in uh, basically turn by turn by turn by turn by turn over and over again with no actual round structure until the end of the game is triggered, in which case the game ends immediately. On your turn, you have a hand of five cards. It's a kind of a deck builder, but not really because the good cards you could add to your deck are one-time use. Once you've used them, they're gone. And then you would have to just get more cards or buy more of the special cards. It's a hand builder. It is essentially a hand builder. So on your turn, you are going to be playing a card from your hand onto your player board in one of three windows. Whenever you play it, it has an action in the top left of a location. That's going to gain you resources based on your followers. There are three locations they could be with three different resources for those locations. So if you play the desert, you are then going to gain as many stone from the desert as you have followers of your color there. Once you do that, you go to the bottom of the card, which can have a plethora of different actions you get to take. Your basic deck has either one, sometimes two actions. The Mahane cards are going to give you always two actions, maybe three, I think. I think just two. And then the 33 AD cards are the best, and they are going to give you three different actions or rewards every single time. So on your turn, you will play that card, take the different actions for that card. If you have uh, the ability to then take one of the apostles and put them at the table at the Last Supper, you can may do so at that time. Then you have a choice to buy him a hand card. You fill your hand back up. It goes to the next person. Nice and simple. The different actions are like all games. It's going to be allowing you to gain more resources, allowing you to move people around, allowing you to put people where you want them to be, in this case, at the Last Supper, allowing you to rearrange cards sometimes, allowing you to help another person out, which gives you a benefit and them a benefit. All kinds of different things, but it's it's a Euro game. It, you, you do one thing, which allows you to push a cube somewhere else, which allows you to move a cube somewhere else or something along those lines. Yes, we played this at both the three-player version with Brian, and we played it uh, two-player with ourselves. And we definitely have to say both of us preferred the three-player version more than the two-player. Yes, so the Last Supper area of the board is the critical area for points the critical area for several other actions, as well as you getting bonus actions. Uh, it's going to be your points at the end of the game. It's going to be how you can disrupt other people's points. It's going to be the critical area that you want to focus your attention to. Basically, all your resources you're collecting is for the Last Supper area. All the cards you're buying is to get you points in that area, so it's the most important aspect. In a three-player game, there are a few spaces that are already blocked by a non-player color. You can uh, move those around and replace them in things uh, as you play the game. But in a four-player game, it's completely free and open. In a two-player game, however, all these places are going to be seeded. Not all of them, like half of them are going to be seeded with the two non-player colors. So they're blocking all of your spaces. 
uh, just to just to make this, I guess, easier, there are I got to do math here. Uh, eight times three, twenty-four. There are twenty-six spaces on one side of the table and twenty-six on the other. That's how many spaces there are. Of those twenty-six spaces, twelve on each side have a benefit when you go there, whether it be uh, gaining money or gaining a special action or getting to listen to a parable, rearrange your cards. There's rearrange your people. Yeah, there's different things that you can do when you place a follower at the Last Supper. No matter what action or what thing gets you to place your follower, when he goes there, you place him down, boom, you get the action underneath. However, in a two-player game, with the followers of the non-player colors that are seated in their different patterns, some of them are covering those rewards underneath, which means whenever you place a person at the Last Supper in a two-player game, you can either place them regularly in an open spot, taking any reward underneath, or you may place them where a non-player follower color, non-player color is. You collect that meeple and you put your person there, but you do not gain the benefit of the space underneath. That was my biggest issue with the two-player version is because there were times in the three-player game where I would purposely place my person in a worse scoring spot because I wanted the action or the reward of where I was placing them that was benefiting me better for the long run. And I liked doing that in the two player game. That is much more difficult to do to get the actual action that you're wanting to get. And I found that that made not only me feel like I couldn't do what I needed when I needed it as much, but also me and Haley both felt like the game drug on at the end. Yes. In the two player version, it definitely felt like it drug on. There was a point probably about two-thirds the way through the game where it really didn't benefit either one of us to get any more of the apostles that were out. We had gotten the ones that we wanted. But then, so there is an an action that allows you to move up the track that ends the time. It's the Sanhedrin track. The Sanhedrin track. And so we weren't drawing the cards that we needed in order to move up the track. We also had a lot of the places filled on the board that allowed you to place your little critter on them to allow you to move up the track. Yep. And so it really just kind of got to a stalemate about two thirds in where I feel like, okay, I feel like I'm done. I feel like I'm kind of going through the motions of things. We're just trying to run out the clock at that point. It really was because I had a hand of useless cards and every card I drew was again useless for getting uh, the any of the apostles out. And since most were out, I was just trying to get points by the set using the sets of cards. Um. Basically, I in the beginning, I said that you play a card and the card has a location on it as well as some other actions. Well, in those three windows on your player board, when you play a card down, uh, you always play, if you play a card on top of it, you always keep the location revealed underneath and you create a set of three locations. And if they're in a specific order and they are a specific three locations or actions or whatever, uh, I guess the locations, then you are able to, on your turn, discard those cards, gain points for those cards based on the green number, and then put an apostle that matches that pattern. They're either pink, orange, and silver, and white. You can then put them at the Last Supper. They're worth points. They also have special actions that you get to do when you place them. If the apostles are gone of a certain color, you can still use that set of three cards that matches to get the points. You just get no benefit of placing an apostle and no benefit of that apostle's action when he's placed because you didn't place one. 
So I was digging and digging and digging and digging and digging and digging and digging for like five or six or seven turns and not getting anything that would push me toward getting those points. So I'm just doing actions to merely do actions to keep the game playing because we're trying to get through the end of the game. And I felt like the three-player variant, we were not like that. No, the three-player was like, please don't end it. I have a few things I want to do. Yes, and I and I don't know if that was because of the player interaction too, because, for example, you, in the two-player version, you can't do favors, but in three and four players, you can do favors where yep. basically I scratch your back, you scratch mine, I'm going to do something nice for you, it moves me up on this track, I get him a hang card, but you also get a benefit. And so I feel like that, you know, one, gave us more things to do, more choices to make, but two, kept you also more engaged when it wasn't your turn, because then you're pleading with Brian, do, no, I want the favor. I'll get you the favor next time. Like it, it yeah. whether or not it means to kind of has a little more of a social element to keep you a little more engaged between the turns. It does. And I, I would like to play this four player. I think four player is definitely where it's going to shine. And I, I told, I was talking to Brian today and I said, we got to play it because we were talking about games. He tried uh, holding on and he said that they weren't really a fan. He liked most of it, but he said that like several different rules to him just felt like they were only there to make the game difficult. And it just kind of, they, both of them came away saying like that was just too hard and not as fun as it could have been. Um, so I don't think they're going to end up holding on to it. I spent three bucks you holding hold on, on to holding, holding on. on. <laughs> I spent $3 on it at a clearance sale of a store that is shutting down Tuesday morning. So that was a whole thing. But anyway, I was talking to him about games and we were talking about that. And I brought this up that we played at two player. And I told him that me and you weren't as big of a fan of two player. And he said that he didn't like the, uh, the nest, like pre nested followers, those non-player followers. He didn't like that and thought that there wasn't really an opportunity for, good gameplay there and i said that i actually didn't mind them i think there needs to be less is all if you did half the number it would be great because then as you move them you're uncovering spaces and there's more opportunity to then move move them and keep more spaces open as the game goes on because as you're placing people around the last supper and there's all those followers coming away and coming back and moving and then I'm placing people at the Last Supper, pretty soon there's not really a chance to move people around. It's just full. And so I think with half of the followers, it would be a better, a better time then. I agree. I like the ability to earn extra points doing that, but I don't feel like it's necessarily necessary. So the non-player color followers in the two-player game is when you place one of your meeples down in the Last Supper where a non-player color was, you get to take that non-player color and you can place it down later with an action that lets you do that or you can move one. But basically, when you move it next to something adjacent, vertical or horizontal, so orthogonally adjacent, uh, you gain points for how big the grouping of that color is. So if I put a red next to a red, that's two points. If Haley comes in and puts a third red, that's three points. If I come in then and put a fourth red, but it actually ties it into another, that's five points. And you can make some extra points doing that. Uh, so that's what that is. But that's only in the two-player game, which at this point, I think I just don't recommend the two. I think the two's fine. But I did enjoy the three. I did as well. I, I really enjoyed the three-player game, and I was extremely excited to play it again. Uh, even after a long work day on Wednesday, I was really excited to play it, the two-player. But again, the two-player was kind of a letdown. Definitely recommend three-player. Also looking forward to the four-player. Definitely. There's, there's a few things in the game uh, to be aware of that are kind of funky such as the golden desert area produces the gray rock tile, while the kind of gray mountain area produces the golden bread token. 
That's a dumb color Con- decision. So confusing. There's so many times that we would try to go to the desert to make bread or the mountain to get rocks, and that's not how it works. That's uh, they, they paired those colors up very poorly, in my opinion, and Brian's and Haley's, really. Um, but, I mean, aside from that... I guess the bread is stone ground. There you go. Hey. Aside from that, like, the way the game plays, playing a card, taking the actions, drawing a card, uh, trying to build a set with the cards you're playing to then move an apostle... Like everything flows pretty well. There's a few little, you know, design, desi- uh, design, Jesus, uh, Jesus, he's in the game. Jesus. Design decisions that kind of throw me off and as well. So the temple space is where you get to go and allows you to put people from your player board, meeples from your player board out to either the lake, mountain or desert regions where you can get resources. But there's also an action in the game that's a single action that lets you put one person anywhere without paying a cost. Normally, you have to pay a cost to do this. Well, the way that the, the picture depicts it, it makes it look like that one person action is actually paying the cost and that the temple is somehow also just paying the cost. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. They could have cleaned that up, I think, a bit. So be aware there are some confusing things uh, and a few small details that you want to make sure to get right in the book. But aside from the gameplay, we enjoyed the gameplay. It's a Euro game that uses cards for actions. I like that. I like the game. It's a fun game. The actions are are interesting, I think. And it was enjoyable to play. But In in the words of the Doobie Brothers, Jesus is just all right with me. There you go. Uh, But one of the things that we also were talking about, which I think we can go ahead and talk about now, is in general, the theme. Like I said in the beginning, introducing this game, you likely had one of two reactions to a game about Jesus and the Last Supper. It's probably either a negative or a positive reaction. Some people, there might be a neutral. It just depends on where you come from and what your history is with religion. And that was one thing with the game is I was very curious when Brian said he bought this uh, because it's, you know, definitely one of those themes that's like interesting, but I just don't know how it's going to be presented. Is it being presented as a like pro-Christianity game? Is it being presented as a anti-Christianity game? Or is it being presented as a more neutral stance? And I was surprised, but also relieved that this really tries to come across as a neutral stance. Yeah, like you said earlier, it's very much a historical account. It doesn't have the spirituality aspect, really. It isn't anti-Jesus by any means or anti-religion. It's not making fun of religion. It's not making light of it. It's, it's also not, like you said, uh, it's also not proselytizing you. And so it really is just a neutral historical game. Yeah, and there are some elements that uh, can kind of put sour notes in folks' mouths. I think you had talked about somebody who wrote an article about it and how it was kind of ironic that, you know, the, the Bible teaches you that the last shall be first to try to make yourself, you know, the, the last in line when it comes to, you know, eating with Jesus or whatnot. And like this game, the whole premise is you want to be as close as possible to win. But I did realize, though, after having chewed on that for a little bit, that I think that's the reason why all of the good rewards at the Last Supper were near the back. I mean, that makes sense. They are all near the back, like the 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 easiest seats to pay for, because you have to pay with resources. The easiest seats to pay for are also where you're going to get the least amount of points. But and though they have rewards when you place your meeple. The most expensive seats are closer for more points, but they cost significantly more. It is funny that Jesus would charge you an entry fee to come to the Last Supper. That was one of the things that I saw online, and I was like, that's kind of funny because that's exactly how this game works. But it's it's interesting that 
uh, in the rule book here, and I told this to Haley, the rule book has all kinds of Bible verses all throughout. I think majority of them are um, from the four Gospels, uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. I think I got those all backwards in terms of order, but that's <laughs> fine. Uh, remix. Yeah, remix of some sort. I don't remember what order they go in. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Is that how I said it? I don't know. I think I said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I was playing with I might have said Mark, Mark Matthew. I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, so they have Mark, a, Mandy. They Mark. have a yes. They have a lot of they have a lot of Bible quotes uh, verses in the book. But I told Haley something that was interesting, and I thought that this at least uh, speaks to them trying to maintain uh, as best they can a historical and neutral stance in terms of the religion of the game or uh, religious themes that they're using here and stuff like that is that not many of them actually reference God or anything like that. They all try to be ones that have a reason that they're stating it. Uh, The one for the market, Judah and the land of Israel traded with you. They exchanged for your merchandise, wheat from Mineth, millet, honey, oil, and balm from, it says E3, third Ezekiel. I don't know. 2717. I don't know what those are. Anyway, that's an interesting because like that's the quote that they used. It was simply about trading, like trading being presented or present in the New Testament. And I feel like we should have talked about this earlier in this discussion. Just kind of a background on Delton and I. Delton was raised without religion. Hello. I was raised strict Catholic. Yeah. And so uh, that's kind of where we're we're coming from in our understanding of religion and Christianity and things like that. I am went through the whole two years of study to become completely confirmed in the Catholic Church. All that fun stuff. No longer identify as Catholic, but that's kind of our background. And I went to a secular college and have a minor in religious studies with my humanities major. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so I very much look at religion from a different standpoint um, because I did not grow up with it, um, at least not in any capacity of an organizational manner, ritualistic manner, none of that. I mean, it was really just, I knew it existed, but it was absent from my teachings growing up at home. And it was a backbone of mine. And now we both identify, I think we could say, a secular yeah. And so it doesn't really play a role in it, but that's kind of where our our understanding of religion comes from. And still somehow I'm probably going to screw up half the things whenever I talk about uh religion in the in the topic here in a few minutes. Oh, for sure. But it's interesting that like majority of the the Bible quotes in the book, they don't they don't speak on it. They don't speak on God, they don't speak on things like that. And some of them there are some that mention it. They have a longer one here that uh all it talks about is Jesus walking through the cities and villages and 12 were with him, the 12 apostles. And that's, that's it. It just talks about that. It literally has the only line that says God. It says bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. And that that's it. And so they did a pretty good job picking out what they want to use that not only represents the area they're talking about, but it's not, feeling like they're trying to say something with it. Yes. They're trying to use the Bible as a historical text. There's a whole conversation that can be done there about uh, the Bible as a historical text, other historical references to Jesus. And that's a, that's a whole scholarly conversation that can be had elsewhere. Uh, but in terms of this game, I just, I think they did a pretty good job. They use cool stuff. They use uh, like good artwork. I think the artwork is great. It's it's very pretty, and I like the look of the Jesus tile itself and the apostles and the action symbols to me just have, like, a really cool look to them. The fish is very grumpy, which is great. Very upset fish. Everyone loves a grumpy fish. He's out of the water. I'd be upset, too. Right. 
one of the things Brian said before we move on past the game, because I think this is interesting too, um, he was watching a review from, I think it's Tantrum House, big review channel on YouTube. Uh, they were talking about how this uses a lot of Latin and how they were saying if it was actually, you know, Jesus's time, it would be Hebrew and Aramaic. And um, I, I think that a lot of it, because technically the New Testament was in Greek. And so, you know, yeah, Hebrew would have been spoken in Jesus's time. But if we're looking at this with a reference to the Gospels, the Gospels all came later by at least 30 to 40 to 50 years at minimum. And that was for the first one, uh, which I think is Mark. And so at that point, they would have been Greek. And then Latin was coming in very strongly. And 99% of all of our shit that we know from the Bible comes from Latin. And so I don't think it's inappropriate to use Latin. And I think trying to make an argument to use uh, Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or something isn't a terrible idea. But being that everyone is familiar with Latin in a religious context, at least like you're used to that, I, I think it makes sense. Because Anno Domini is when you hear, you know, we're in the year 2023 AD, that's Anno Domini in the year of the Lord. And so that it makes sense that they would use that because that Latin is everywhere. But I just wanted to point that out. I thought that was interesting. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Haley, it really is interesting. Haley's nodding her head like, please move on. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm nodding as an, oh, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. Because like, again, you know, being raised in the Catholic Church, we were taught a lot of history, but the history of the Catholic Church from the Catholic perspective, let's, let's turn a blind eye to a lot of stuff. Yeah. Crusades. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so like hearing you, it's really fascinating that Delton has a minor in religious studies as a someone who is raised completely without religion, because again, he looks at everything from a very historical context and I love it. And like, even though I've been married to him for, you know, eight years, we've been together for almost 11 years, 11 years this month. Like sometimes I still get surprised at what he says and it challenges my even former beliefs or understanding about my own former religion that I was raised in for 25 years. And so you talking about that just now, I was nodding my head because I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I never knew that. And so that was just a little peek into my brain just now. Yeah, that's what we learned about. It, then it gets translated to Latin and then Latin gets translated into German and English. And then that all gets translated into modern. And it's, it's a whole it's a whole shit show of translation after translation. It's all Greek to me. It is. But yes, with all that being said and a bunch of ramble and, and a mumbo jumbo, let's move into the topic. <laughs> hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So the topic for today is a creation of Haley's. Hello. Haley's idea was to talk about the representation of deities or gods is a better is another term you can use, even though I guess there's some slight differences there. I don't honestly know the detail there, which is surprising for myself. Uh, in board games, so the representation of deities in board games, because one of the things that we noticed here in Jerusalem is that Jesus is presented as the man Jesus with just a halo around his head, as he is a pretty much always depicted in art, I believe, and that's it. Yeah, there's no mention of him as the Messiah, no mention of him as the Son of God, no mention of the resurrection, no mention of, you know, wandering the desert for 40 days, talking to Satan, so on and so forth. There's no mention of any of that. It is really just Jesus from a historical context, Jesus as a prophet and a philosopher, nothing else. 
And we thought this was very different because if you look at other games that depict different religions or different belief systems, they actually often, more often than not, seem to depict the actual deities themselves. Yes, this game depicts Jesus as a man, not as a Holy Spirit, not as God, not as, you know, someone doing these big divine things. He's simply a man at a table and you're going to have dinner with him. Yes, there are, you know, a few Bible verses, the one about him telling someone to go fish, but he just told him to go fish, right? So even then, it doesn't present him as someone that made all the fish appear. Go be fishers of men now. There you go. Uh, But in this game, he's just depicted as a man. And like Haley said, in most other games, when there is a deity in the game, uh, that deity is depicted as a god of some sort, as a powerful being, as a warrior, you know, as whatever they are. They're never depicted in, as most deities have, like a simple human form or something something more uh, uh, co- common? Yeah. I, I don't know what a better word would be. It's almost like they're, they're depicted in their more sensationalized view. That's, that's a good term. Because I think about like Rising Sun and the depictions of the commies. What do the commies look like? I mean, they're, it's, it's always a very elaborate artwork. Uh, given that's based off, you know, if you look at uh, ancient Japanese artwork of like Raijin or Fujin or Amaterasu, like you do get this these fanciful images, but it's turned up to 11 in Rising Sun, right? You get the figures on the board of certain ones. And they're powerful. Yes. And they're on your side and you use them and they smite others and like they're yeah. using their their powers as a deity to control the board and whatnot. I haven't played Blood Rage in a long time, but Blood Rage, I believe, has a bunch of stuff like that as well. Where it is, it's uh, uh, Ankh is the most recent example. You're playing as the god or you're utilizing the god's special powers that manipulates things past what normally is possible. And there's a lot of that just within board games. I mean, even Santorini. Santorini, you're playing as little people or you're playing with a god's powers that's just going for it from there. So usually, yeah, it's always a sensationalized version of of this deity in this in this religion that's influencing the board, influencing everything with these, you know, otherworldly powers. Except the Christian God. Because can you imagine a board game that comes out and you're playing the Christian God and you are, I don't know, flooding the world? Yeah. Or you have to make the decision to kill your only son. Can you can you imagine turning water into wine? Turning water into wine, yeah. But I mean, you don't see the Christian God depicted in that way, like you do other gods. And I just found that was really interesting. You know, not not that I I mean, it'd be really cool to have like a board game where Jesus has superpowers. It sounds dope. Um, <laughs> but I mean, done respectfully though. But you know, and I'm not saying that you know other games can't depict deities in a respectable way. But why is it that all these other religions have their deities depicted in games and have their deities, you know, I guess you'd say their their deities, uh, godlike powers as like mechanisms in the board game, but you don't see that for the Christian perspective. You don't see that for the Christian gods. Why is that? I mean, it's really hard to say. I, I think I think the most reasonable answer is that Christianity is the third most common religion or second? I think it's the second. 
Well, I think I, it's. I think Hinduism's the first. Let's L- go to Google. Google this. I I believe if I am correct, it's Hinduism. I think they're the third. I want to say it's Hinduism, Islam, and then Christianity. I know Christianity is number one. Oh. Islam number two. Unaffiliated number three. Then Hinduism. Then Buddhism. I love how unaffiliated is now a religion. Okay, so Christianity is the most popular. Okay, I mean I, it makes sense, I guess. Uh, but anyway, so Christianity then, if it's the most common religion on the planet, um, it's going to be something that people find, people have an easier time being uncomfortable or finding, uh, having an issue with depictions of their actively worshipped God. Correct? Right. So one of the things, so I, I have a book I was looking through today to kind of prep a little for this episode, not not like a ton-ton, but... It's by the most British-sounding man ever, James C. Livingston. Uh, James Livingston has a book called Anatomy of the Sacred, and it's all about studying religion. It's a book that walks you through some of the basic uh, ideas and terminology behind studying religion with multiple different religions represented in his examples. And he talks a lot about just different things, how to study it, and introduces you to different religions and different ideas. And it's, it's... I read it in college, at least most of it. Uh, It's a great book. Highly recommended if that stuff kind of interests you at all. But he has a little section about myth and mythology. And he said that, and I've heard this several times throughout when I was in college, is that the term myth and mythology has been used to mean something that is not true. When modern scholars reject that, and say that a myth is a mixture of things that are true and things that are not necessarily not true. That are believed. That are believed. So uh, in a more modern sense, a mythology is a religion. Every religion is a mythology because every religion has fables. It has parables. It has these tales, while it also has pieces of fact and actual other things involved they work together to provide these moral stories and this belief system across all religions. That's just how it is. And so I think that a lot of it is if you ask most people, and I'm, this is a generalization of the people that I know that are uh, strong Christian believers, other religions for them are mythology in a negative context. Or in an untrue context. Or in an untrue context where their own, they would never consider any element of it at all to be, un, uh, yeah, to be untrue. And so I think that that's part of the depiction of Jesus is that being the most populous religion out there, every single aspect of it for, I would say for m- most people that are followers of Christianity, it, it would be rude to depict something inaccurately or uh, it could be interpreted in in a, in a a negative light if it's used in any way that you know you know what I mean yeah. I don't know, I'm having trouble putting my words together but. no and I agree with that one hundred percent like I and I understand what you mean like um you know and and my question like why why isn't it you know why isn't the Christian God used um in in board gaming why isn't you know that deity depicted it was more of a rhetorical question I feel like you answered really well yeah and that is you know people are uncomfortable seeing it. But then, like, we think about, again, Rising Sun depicting the commies, and they pulled from Wikipedia. They pulled from Wikipedia, including a fake god. And, you know, that's 
they pulled from Wikipedia. They used these gods from the Shinto religion, which is, you know, the ancient Japanese Shinto religion. And people still follow Shinto today. It's not a massive amount of Japan, but a good amount of Japan still follow the Shinto beliefs or it's blended into their more modern uh, Buddhism is, I think, the other biggest religion in Japan. But, I mean, when you see a, uh, a Tori gate, the, the Tori gates were associated with in, uh, Inari, which was the god of, like, rice fields depicted by a fox, which is why there's a fox. And, like, there's all these things that are still part of their culture strongly and their religion and their history and everything. And we put them in board games all the time just because we think they're cool. But you're depicting something people actively believe. It's the same with Norse gods. There's a lot of Norse paganism, as we learned it in school, which is the, the, the Norse uh, system of belief that is coming back. It's especially in like Iceland. Oh, my old coworker is Norse pagan. Yeah, and it's it's becoming popular, but we use those deities, those gods, those stories as if they're just a children's book. But people do believe in that today. And so it's interesting. I don't know. It's just interesting to see how much, if it's outside of what we're used to, how willing we are to just throw it out there with whatever attached to it. But when it comes home to something familiar, it's uncomfortable. Yes, you can't. You can't diss the Holy Spirit. Not to say you should diss the Holy Spirit. And again, I I do not think that the board game community needs a sacrilegious Jesus game. I do not think of it. I'm sure there's ones that exist out there. I'm not. We already have Nicaea from ah. Hollenspiel, which is very tongue-in-cheek, kind of poking fun in not such a subtle way in, ah. on a lot of the flavor text. On, on the religion and whatnot. Yes. But like with, with, with uh, the actual deed, I don't feel like we need... Mm-hmm a sacrilegious Jesus game or a sacrilegious game about God, the Christian God. I don't think we need that at all. I'm not saying that, oh, you know, we're careless with rising sun, therefore it's okay to be a little careless and make a make a fun game about Jesus. No, I'm not saying that. I just think that, you know, it, it's just really interesting looking to see how Christianity is portrayed in board games versus these other religions. And, you know, we have to keep in mind, like what Delton said, these religions are still practiced. Even if they're not, they're still culturally and historically significant to a lot of people and to the world around us. And so I think it's just food for thought to to take that into consideration whenever you're using those games. You know, if you are depicting the gods or the deities to take consideration, or if you're just depicting the religion, to do more research than just Wikipedia. Absolutely. We are not experts. I am not an expert. Yes, I did some studying of it and a little and you know classes for religion in college uh that was six years ago so if i get something wrong it's fine i'm doing my best <laughs> but and, and we're it, also biased in our own perspectives yes, as well yes in a, in a very true sense we're, we're biased in our perspective it's been a while we can't know everything and if anything we said was disrespectful please let us know and we'll do our best to remedy that but uh not trying to get things wrong, just throwing that out there that we may misspeak. I might have a historical fact wrong. Maybe we said something incorrectly. We're just trying not to be offensive in it to any way because we want to, you know, we don't want to do that for sure. But, you know, I say we might make mistakes. I say, uh, you know, research before you use a theme. Also, probably research before you do a podcast, too. <laughs> we researched a little bit for sure. Not just a ton, a ton, a ton. But anyway, back. So back to the topic. It's uh, like you said, it is very interesting that. You don't see the Christian, you know, a deity. You don't see Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, whatever, 
represented hardly ever unless it's either a like a proselytizing trip through the Holy Land, you're going to play it in Bible camp kind of game, or something like Jerusalem, which seems to take a different approach, which is honestly welcome, because that's a part of history that obviously I find fascinating. And a lot of people are interested in that kind of stuff. And I just feel like there's so much more you could do. I mean, we have games about the Crusades. You've got games about the Pope. You've got games about the papacy. You've got games about all these aspects of Christian religion. Nuns on a run. Nuns on a run. You just never see the God depicted basically ever. And when you do, it's usually nice and and chill like this. So it's just, it's kind of interesting. It is really interesting. I think at the end of this episode, I think it's really just food for thought. For sure. When it comes to whether you're a board game designer or choosing board games and and whatnot, just to to be respectful of the religions, no matter what they are, and, and to also take care whenever you're researching. I mean, I'm sure that this game, Jerusalem, got some things incorrect, got some things actually inaccurate, but you can tell that there is a great care to not use the theme to make fun, to not use the theme to convert folks. And I, and I feel like we can do that with other religious themes and games too. Yes. And, I, and it just, I don't know, it's kind of icky to think about, because I didn't really think about it as deeply until I played this game, that really care and consideration isn't always at the forefront whenever using other religions and games. I mean, religions, cultures, wars, historical anything, which we've talked about, I feel like a lot in the past about taking care in theme with the culture of the people or the history of the people or the religion of the people that you're representing, there always, always can be a lot more care done in every manner because yes, not everyone's going to find everything to be off color, to be offensive, to be over the line. But the problem is, is you don't want anybody to feel that way if you can help it. And if all it takes is double checking that Wikipedia article that this monkey God is actually not part of the Japanese gods. Not just some guy named Steve. It's not just some guy. Yeah. Some guy named Steve. I feel like it's not a lot. It doesn't take a lot to do a little extra look or, or do something that I'm glad a lot of companies are starting to do. Hire somebody as a cultural consultant or a historical researcher. So things are done correctly. The first time it avoids any kind of social boo-boos where everyone like me says, you're really dumb for doing that. It avoids all of it, and you're paying somebody to do the work that they care about so you can make a better product, get more trust from your customers, and move forward, make more games because you have now a good reputation. Is that so hard? Yes. (laughs) It feels like it is. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Hey, he's in the game. Yeah. There you go. Well, that was a hell of a topic. Let's have a beer before we go to the question. Uh. I feel like I like that, though. I feel like we had a good conversation here, and hopefully you have food for thought while we have drink for thought. Yes. No? Okay. <laughs> I was waiting on a response, and you just said I had that. to process that for a second. We have drink for thought. Oh, yeah. That, yep. Let's think about this drink. There Let's, you go. Everything's fine. I got a drink about it. I got a drink in problem. I hope not. A thinking so problem. There this is, is also from Anthem Brewing Co. It is another fruited sour ale, but this one instead is tangerine. It is also 5.3% alcohol by volume. It is also in a 12-fluid ounce can. Don't touch that dial. This bright and tart-fruited sour ale is sure to have you begging for more. 
We balance that familiar citric bite with a smooth and easy touch of tangerine to give you your new favorite sour. They literally swapped one word. I was about to say, I think they self-plagiarized there a little bit. So which one's going to be our new favorite sour, Delty Poo? Uh, which one of these two? Here's the problem. I already know my favorite. My favorite's both. Your favorite's tangerine. Tangerine wins out all... I mean, the other one's really good, but tangerine is just perfect. It's a very... Uh, not very cloudy. It's actually decently see-through, but it's a very, very light... Looks like a wheat beer to me. It does look like a wheat beer, but it smells just like a tangerine. Like, mm-hmm. It feels like you're putting your nose in a tangerine. And you take a drink, and it's sweet. It's a little tart. And then just like the... Whatever the purple and blueberry... It finishes almost more sweet than anything, which makes it just hit nice and gentle on the way down. It doesn't get your jaw. It reminds me a lot of a mimosa. Yes, that is definitely how I would describe it. It is the mimosas of beers. It's like a mimosa, and I just want to be, I don't, but I just want to be outside in the heat, my feet in the pool, in, in the shade, drinking one of these. We have the technology. I've had my kiddie pool out this year. It's too hot. I forgot to say that, too. I have had time to chillax in my kiddie pool. It has been delightful, and I love it. You have. Well, this is a fantastic sour as well. They're both really, really good. But with that, let's move to the question so we can wrap this up and probably go to bed. And now, join us for a Malthouse Games podcast special bite-sized question. So to the question here so we can get to bed because we've been sitting here talking about a question for like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of forgot until it was question time. And I was like, what's our question? Delt goes, I don't know. And then I also went, well, I don't know. And we but sat in silence. Now we know. Now we know the question for today. Since we talked about, you know, research and things like that, what is the strangest thing you've researched for class of any kind? So I think... Mine was definitely my second year of graduate school. I was in a social psychology class, and we each had to choose a perspective and a theory to write about and apply it to something that happens in modern day life. And so I chose Roy Baumeister, and he talks a lot about social psychology. He talks a lot about willpower, and I applied his theories and his research to ISIS recruitment techniques. And so I spent probably about a good month or so uh, researching ISIS recruitment techniques. I will not tell you the types of targeted ads I got after researching ISIS recruitment techniques for about a month there. I will tell you the next three times I flew, I was quote-unquote randomly selected by TSA. But I can tell you a lot about ISIS recruitment techniques, but I probably shouldn't because I feel like the FBI is still watching me. That's pretty great, not going to lie. So mine is not nearly as interesting, and I was trying to find legitimate numbers because it's easier for me. So in mine, it was during my ancient Greek, it wasn't ancient Greek philosophy class, but it was my other ancient Greek culture. It was my ancient Greek culture class in college. Uh, I wrote a paper on the Battle of Marathon, which was a battle at Marathon Bay during the first invasion of the uh, Persians into Greece. And it was between uh, the Athenians and the Persians. And uh, we have essentially modern estimates here, but then Herodotus, who is a historian of sorts, I'm going to say, Herodotus wrote his history, but it involved the gods in a lot of it, which was very interesting. If I'm remembering correctly, I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, the Battle of Marathon uh, is kind of crazy. 
But basically what I found as the interesting kind of topic or interesting weird thing to research is when you start researching how the Athenians won, uh, modern estimates, uh, they say that the Athenians had 10 to 11,000 people. And then on the Persian side, they estimate 25,000 infantry, 1,000 cavalry, 100,000 armed oarsmen and sailors, 600 trireme boats, and some uh, and a bunch of other stuff. So a ton of people. Uh, the Persians lost 6,400 with seven ships captured, and the Athenians only di- uh, lost 192, along with wow. uh, 11 others. That's that's from Herodotus himself. Um, but what was so fascinating, a part of why the Persians died, is they were stuck on the beach because the Athenians had the high ground up above. And when you have, uh, according to these estimates, 25, that's 26,000, plus all the people that could be defending the ships of 100,000 plus, on one beach, and you have no access to food or water or ways to get out, you got to make a poopy and a pee-pee somewhere, and they started getting sick, and it was not a healthy environment for anyone. And I thought that was fascinating to just read about, oh, yeah, no, they had to poop in one part of the beach. And with that many people, that part grows very quickly, and then the flies and the bugs, and they just talked about that, and I was like, this is so gross but so fascinating. That's probably the weirdest, strangest thing. Ah, shit. Yeah, literally. Lots of shit. And then people died. It was a war. Anyway, that was a weird long intro to talk about poop. (laughs) I was like, I got to present the information. It's fascinating. Listen to this. What do you guys research? ISIS recruitment techniques and poop. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. That works out I think we found our snippet for the the ad for the episode. (laughs) ISIS recruitment techniques and poop. I don't know (laughs) if we need to put that out into the being. We're going to both start getting targeted ads. We're going to get so many more listeners. (laughs) And by so many more listeners, I mean CIA and FBI agents. Hey, as long as you're listening to the podcast, I don't care what you're doing. Numbers are numbers, baby. There you go. (laughs) Dollar, dollar bills, y'all. That's what it was. Uh, Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Malthouse Games podcast. I want to give a big shout out to our amazing Patreon patrons. Thank you so much to Alan, Jennifer, and Cliff for supporting us at a level in which you get shouted out on the podcast. We also have some other patrons that support at other different levels, and they're all amazing. If you would like to be like them, head over to patreon.com slash Malthouse Games. You can also find us on all social media at Malthouse Games, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S Games. I should spell it every time, but I don't. You can also find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-K. That is at Squirrely Geek. If you have... Any comments, any questions, any concerns, any game you think we should look at, a topic you want us to cover, a question you want us to answer, a beer we should find, send me an email, contact at malthousegames.com. You can also message me on Twitter. That's probably my most active. Instagram, probably second. Facebook, never. Just slide into his DMs. Yes, my Tweedems. Ooh. Tweed. Tweedems. Tweedems. There you go. Uh, yes, I think that's going to cover everything for this episode, though. We will be back. We're going to record this episode, and then in a couple days, we're going to record another episode. This one will be out on Sunday, uh, 7, 8, the 9th. The next one will be out two weeks later when we're barely back from our cruise. We'll tell you more about the cruise and what we're looking forward to on the next episode. And then the one after that, you'll actually get to hear about the cruise and what happened. So to be continued, my friends. Literally two episodes for this to be continued. Oh, man. And then, episode after that, we'll be talking about getting ready for Gen Con. 
I know, all kinds of stuff coming up, but we'll get to that later. Thank you again so much for tuning in and listening. Uh, until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Goodbye. Bye.